thank you all for your uh, patience and forbearance. Uh, it's been a bit of an odyssey to get here, but well worth it. Uh, and I also want to thank uh, my friend, uh, many years long standing, uh, Judith Goldstein, for gracious hospitality. Can you all help me send appreciation? This represents tonight uh, an annual convening and a conference of an extraordinary array of professionals uh, organized and uh, who've been pulled together under Imagine Action. And I want to say to you that it is an extraordinary privilege for me to be in your presence. Uh, this collection and constellation of talent, ability, and ideals, and intellect. But now I want to share with you a story that has not leave this room, okay? Uh, it's a funny story, and it speaks to um, uh, the fact that as a uh, ordained minister and a trial attorney, I've not always been so fortunate to speak uh, in such an august gathering. So I can think of a time uh, years ago when I was a student at Boston University School of Theology. And at that time, I found myself in London, England on a Sunday morning, true story. And I stood outside of this beautiful Gothic cathedral with spires soaring up toward the heavens. Uh, the stained glass windows reflecting the iridescent, multi-hued, multi-colored uh, beauty of God. And as a young, innocent, presumptuous preacher, I assumed that there were 2,000 or so people inside waiting to hear this young, naive, presumptuous preacher preach. I need you all to keep this for yourself. Don't, don't share this with me. So I made my way into the sanctuary, true story, and I immediately noticed the obvious, the pastor and exactly two members. One member I'll call Miss Jones, and the other member I'll call Miss Smith. Now I did as I was taught to do, which is to say that you preach, you speak, you share with two people in the same way that you would to 2,000, with sincerity, with a sense of one's calling, with a sense of purpose. So now I made my way into the pulpit, and I immediately noticed the obvious that Miss Jones immediately fell asleep. <laughs> now, uh, in the midst of Miss Jones snoring and, uh, and uh, uh, in the midst of her narcoleptic nap, I was so inspired to speak even more fervently. And as I did so, I noticed that Miss Smith seemed to hang on to every word I had to say. She tapped her toes, she clapped her hands, she nodded her head, and that in my theological and ecclesial traditions, she said, amen and hallelujah. And I thought to myself, at least I'm reaching one somebody this Sunday morning. Well, as I concluded my modest little homily, made my way out of the pulpit, made my way to the side of the pastor, the pastor said to me, Brother Brooks, I'm so sorry. Miss Jones falls asleep on everybody. And Miss Smith is out of her mind and did not understand the thing you had to say. <laughs> so you can see why I'm so delighted to be in the midst of this august gathering of HIA fellows uh, who appear to be wide awake and presumably in your right minds. <laughs> this evening represents a peculiar moment in American history. It is an agonizing moment in American history. It's not a matter of happenstance, not a matter of coincidence. It's not no odd mark on the Gregorian calendar or chime on your mobile phone. It is an anxiety-ridden moment in 
American history. When the Southern Poverty Law Center does a survey of American teachers, and we discover that there are multitudes of American children who await the outcome of this election, not prognosticating like pundits on MSNBC, Fox News, or CNN, but they await the outcome of this election in fear. They're Muslim children who think that something perilous will happen to them as a consequence of the outcome of this election. There are Latino children who think that something will happen to their parents, something will happen to them as a consequence of the adults engaging in supposedly grown-up activity, namely the conducting of an election, the practice of democracy. This is an anxiety-ridden moment in American history. It is a moment in history in which we call to mind these prophetic and prescient words of her first lady uttered 75 years ago. Her name was Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, who yet said these, or rather this is no ordinary time. This is no ordinary time. When we see a rise of anti-Semitism, when we see American journalists targeted because of their ethnicity and the con as a consequence of them writing about a presidential candidate. This is a moment in American history where we have a candidate, not a partisan observation, but sociological and a moral and even a theological observation, where we have a candidate tweeting and retweeting from an alt-right website, where we have a campaign in which we have Latinos being ostracized and authorized in the midst of this American democracy, where we have the African-American community proceeded with the word the, the African-Americans, the Latinos, as though we were talking about something other than African-Americans or Latinos. It's an election in which we are talking openly about the construction of a xenophobic wall on the Mexican and American border, separating two countries, but also separating us one from another. It is a moment in which we see a rampant rise in racism in this country. What happens when a modest office of the NAACP in a suburban neighborhood where children ride their bicycles and tricycles on the street? What happens when a branch of the NAACP, an office of the NAACP in Houston, Texas is visited by a group of white nationalists armed with AK-47s and M-16s and Confederate flags as though, it, as though they were willing to engage in racial dialogue. It is a moment in history where we as Americans have to ask ourselves, is this the country that we're going to leave for our children? Is this the country in which we lift up those ideals bequeathed to us by our forebears, by our foremothers, and our forefathers? This is an anxiety-ridden moment. It is a moment marked by a number of challenges that cannot be simply described as the Black Lives Matter movement or the movement for black lives. It is certainly that, but it goes beyond that. It is a moment characterized by police misconduct and the policing challenges from one end of the country to the other. 
It is a moment in which we are facing voter suppression from one end of the country to the other. It is a moment in which we have an American city, namely Flint, Michigan, where a generation of children have been poisoned. It is a moment in which it seems like it's open season on us. Let's think about two years ago when I is a newly minted CEO of the NAACP, the 18th president of the NAACP, came in to serve in my headquarters in Baltimore, Maryland. The second week on the job was Eric Garner in Staten Island. Thereafter, Michael Brown and Ferguson, Tamir Rice, Laquan McDonald, Jamar Clark, Sandra Bland, the Emmanuel Nine, on and on and on, unrelenting hashtag tragedies that disguise the humanity of our country behind the hashtag. It is a moment in which we are reminded of an odious Supreme Court decision that has all the metal, all the moral credibility, all the moral credibility of Plessy versus Ferguson. Supreme Court decision called Shelby versus Holden, in which the Supreme Court, in a morally wrong-headed and constitutionally flat-footed move, decided to gut the Voting Rights Act. And what happened? What happened in the wake of this decision was that we saw a Machiavellian frenzy of voter disenfranchisement from one end of the country to the other. In the state of Texas, they passed a strict voter ID law, despite the fact there's no evidence of voter fraud anywhere in the country to speak of. We know statistically and empirically, one is more likely to see Santa Claus standing next to the tooth fairy at the voting booth than to encounter an actual instance of voter fraud. We know this empirically and statistically. And yet we saw in Texas, the state legislature passed a voter ID law which said essentially this. If you have an ID which allows you to carry a concealed weapon, it is deemed sufficient civic and democratic proof to vote. But an ID which allows you to carry a book of English, a book of chemistry, a book of engineering, a book of Shakespeare, a college textbook is deemed insufficient civic and democratic proof to vote. Six 100,000 votes in the state of Texas in peril as a consequence of voter disenfranchisement disguised as a legislative measure to ballot, or rather to confront voter fraud. A modest little organization called the NAACP took those rascals to court in the Fifth Circuit and we got those votes back. Note that. Meanwhile, over in the state of Alabama, that state legislature, in a moment of legislative wisdom, they deign to pass a strict voter ID law requiring a government-issued photo ID. Then they accompany the law by closing down the Department of Motor Vehicles in African-American counties, the so-called Black Belt. Now let me know, that imperiled 500,000 votes. And not to be too cheeky about it, they then told the people and reassured the people, although well, we closed the, closed the DMVs, 
we will provide temporary mobile ID units to drive from community to community to ensure that people have the IDs necessary to vote. But then we know that the mobile ID units became immobile on Super Tuesday. Now, lest we think this is your grandparents' voter suppression, the voter suppression of the 1950s, a, a kind of quaint, simple voter suppression, a black-white voter suppression. No, my dear colleagues, no, my dear fellows, this is a kind of post-millennial, a post-millennium voter suppression, Jim Crow 2.0. What do we mean by that? This is not merely black-white voter suppression. Yes, African-Americans are disenfranchised. Yes, Latinos are disenfranchised, but also rural voters, and note this, those of you who can claim millennial status, that it is also a war of the old against the young. Because when you close the DMVs in black counties, you're not only disenfranchising African-American voters, you're also disenfranchising young voters who, when they go to the Department of Motor Vehicles to get a driver's license, are getting a license to vote, but also a license to drive to the prom. This is not your grandparents' voter suppression. We go to the state of North Carolina, which then passes within moments of the Shelby versus Holden Supreme Court decision, an omnibus voter suppression law. This is the Lexus law of voter, voter suppression. It has every bell and whistle, every form and conceivable means of suppressing the vote. You'll remember students of American history, recent American history, North Carolina was toward the bottom of the pack in terms of voter participation. And enlightened legislators decided to have pre-registration for 16 and 17 year olds. Sunday voting, early voting, all these measures. And then within a few years, they moved toward the top of the pack. And lo and behold, a diverse, generationally diverse, racially diverse, ethnically diverse electorate had the temerity to elect and re-elect the first African-American president. Well, those who were civically enlightened couldn't have that repeated. They then passed this voter suppression law, which gets rid of nearly everything. What happens? In that state, they decide that an ID, which allows you to walk across the campus, the military campus of Camp Lejeune, or Fort Bragg, deems sufficient civic and democratic proof to vote. But an idea which allows you to walk across the campus of North Carolina A&T, North Carolina State University, Duke University, deemed to be insufficient civic and democratic proof to vote. Again, this is not merely a matter of black-white voter suppression, or black, or I should say white-brown voter suppression, but also young versus old voter suppression. Unless young people miss the point, old politicians, geriatric politicians, politicians suffering from male pattern baldness, they then move polling places from college campuses so that young people can't vote. So it's not only that your high school and college IDs aren't honored, you can't even get to the polling place. But what does, North, what does the uh, NAACP do? We then take them to court, to the Fourth Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals, not a particularly liberal, not a particularly progressive circuit. 
We take them to court, and what does the Fourth Circuit decide? They declare that this omnibus voter suppression law, they declare it to be racially discriminatory, and the actions of the North Carolina State Legislature to be racially discriminatory. And not this is not your average, mediocre form of racial discrimination. No, the court decided and declared that it was carried out with surgical precision, lest you miss the point. This is a perilous moment in American history. It is a moment that calls for leadership. It is a moment that calls for multi-generational, multi-sector, interdisciplinary leadership. What I mean by that, this is not a moment that calls for leadership by tweet. It's not a moment that calls for leadership by posting on Instagram. It is not a moment that calls for posturing. It is not a moment that calls for peeing on CNN, MSC, NBC, ABC, CBS, or in being in the New York Times or the Washington Post. It is a moment that calls for the eloquence of example, showing up and doing the work. What do we mean by that? I'm reminded of a little experience I had in a city in the Shenandoah Valley in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Roanoke, Virginia. A group of 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds who understood that the right to vote is a civic sacrament being desecrated in the temple of our democracy. A group of high schoolers who understood that it's not enough for us to read and regale ourselves with the history of Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. We've got a civil rights movement to live out and live up to now. And in Roanoke, Virginia, we sat down in the office of Congressman Bob Goodlatte, and who, as chair of the House Judiciary Committee, is holding hostage, holding as a legislative hostage, the bill that would fix the Voting Rights Act and give the Justice Department the ability to prosecute and protect American citizens from voter disenfranchisement. So these 16-year-olds, these 17-year-olds, these aren't folks who are White House fellows. They didn't go to the Harvard Kennedy School. They are not HIA fellows. These are high schools who went into a congressman's office and sat down, and then we got arrested. We were fingerprinted, we were booked, and we were taken to the police department. Why? Because we have to send a clear message to those who are responsible for the practice of democracy in this country that citizens are responsible for carrying out this democracy. Citizens are responsible for ensuring that we pass on to our, our children the ideals, the precepts that make this country what it is. But make no mistake, it's a moment that is not only characterized by voter suppression, but there's an ugly evil here that we've been talking about for several years now. And going way back before the viralized violence of these hashtag tra tragedies and these viral videos, namely police misconduct. Let me connect voting with police misconduct. When I was in the Roanoke City Jail, in handcuffs, sitting on a bench, waiting to get fingerprinted, the police officer who had arrested me, young man, he said to me, I'm afraid. I asked him, I said, why are you afraid? You've got the gun, the badges, and I'm the one in handcuffs. He said to me, I'm afraid because 
by arresting the president of the NAACP, my picture is in the paper. I'm worried that somebody's gonna come after me. And when I saw in this young officer's eyes was a fear, not necessarily empirically based, but a real fear of the consequences of the chasm of distrust between the community and the police. Now where we understand that a young black man is 21 times more likely to lose his life at the hands of the police than his white counterpart, then when a African-American man who's unarmed is seven times more likely to lose his life at the hands of the police than his white counterpart. When we understand that we are in the era of mass incarceration where we have 2.2 million Americans behind bars, one million fathers behind bars, 65 million Americans with a criminal record. Here in the, in the city of New York, we got an entire generation that has been profiled and criminalized by an odious policy called stop and frisk, translated and transliterated as demean, dehumanize, and degrade. It is a moment in American history where there's a chasm between the community and the police. It's a moment in which we have a group of woke and conscious and powerful millennials who understand that digital technology is not something for nerds in Silicon Valley, but it is a tool in the hands of social activists who are possessed by a sense of social justice. What do we mean by that? When we think about Ferguson, Missouri, and we think about a group of millennials who saw their friend Michael Brown on the ground for four hours, who took out their cell phones, who took out their mobile devices, and they put those images, they teleported those images around the world via geostationary satellites and fiber optic cable. So much so that they put the words Michael Brown on the lips of Barack Obama in Geneva, Switzerland. That's powerful, not only powerful technology, but a powerful generation. We've seen it all across the country, in Cleveland, in North Charleston, in Ferguson, in Dallas, in Baton Rouge, in Minneapolis, in St. Paul, again and again and again. We have a generation that's saying enough is enough. Unless you think that this little problem can be relegated to those who are of a millennial age. Again, may I share with you a story, not to leave this room, I pre-millennial lawyer, that would be me. I remember being pulled over on the New Jersey Turnpike. I said, excuse me, being pulled over in a small town in New Jersey off the New Jersey Turnpike with my wife and my two young sons. Police officer pulls me over and says to me, you've been bobbing and weaving. How much have you had to drink? I said, well, sir, actually I'm a preacher. I don't drink at all except the communion, and even at communion, they only give you a little bit. <laughs> so it's impossible for me to bob or weave because I, I don't drink. And at that moment, my young son rolls down the window, pokes his head out of the window before mommy and daddy can get to him, and he says, officer, have you caught any bad people tonight? When the officer looked in the back seat and saw my son, looked across the seat and saw my wife, his perception of what he thought I was, wrapped in stereotype, wrapped in stigma, wrapped in racial perception, changed. But it did nothing, it did nothing to cause me to think that I was anything other than his perception of African-American men. And the point being here is we, 
no matter where, what your age is, we're all caught up in this. It's not merely a matter of black and white, though it is disproportionately so. But when we issued a report called Born Suspect, where we talked about racial profiling in terms of African Americans, in terms of Latinos, in terms of people who are part of the LGBTQ community, in terms of those who are Muslim, what we find here is we've got a, 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 a state of policing in this country where we have literally, like our campaign, authorized America. There's a relationship between the way we do policing and the way we have been campaigning. We're authorizing. We're making others out of those who are part of the body politic, part of this republic, part of this democracy. In the midst of this campaign, we as the NAACP understand that we are in the midst of a post-millennium civil rights movement. It includes voter suppression, it includes police misconduct, it includes environmental racism. It is a moment in which we literally are calling upon a multi-generational, multi-racial, multi-ethnic, interfaith army of social justice advocates. It is a moment in which we understand that when we assert the moral proposition that black lives matter, and when we assert that proposition unapologetically, we do so with this moral understanding. When you say that black lives matter, it is a moral predicate to the ethical conclusion that all lives matter. Unless the first is true, the second can never be true. And so it's, you cannot say that all lives matter, except when it comes to black people, when it comes to Latinos, when it comes to members of the LGBT community, when it comes to Muslims. You can't exceptionalize the proposition, neither can you exceptionalize policing in this country. It is a moment in terms of this movement where we have to understand that we as a nation have to come together and fight together and vote together and demonstrate together. It is a moment where we have far too many of our citizens who are literally cloaked in their own skepticism and pessimism about the possibilities of what might be done. But I want to remind you, I want to remind you that every movement in this country has been fueled and energized by young activists. When you think about what happened in the 1950s and the 1960s, we have a tendency to think of Martin Luther King and Julian Bond or, or, or Ella Baker as elder statesmen and stateswomen, as opposed to being young people, people who took risks, who demonstrated leadership not intellectually, not theoretically, not philosophically, but bodily. That means showing up, doing the work. It means being present. It means engaging in moral risk-taking and having a high level of moral ambition. That we have to do. I'm reminded of a little experience we had last summer. With the NAACP purpose within its heart to march from Selma, Alabama to Washington, D.C. to protect the right to vote. Our campaign, if you will, was our lives, our schools, our votes, and our jobs matter. That was the banner we marched under, 43 days in 103 degree heat, pavement at 109 degrees, heat index at 113 degrees. 
43 days engaging 5 million people, mostly young people, online. But can I tell you a story about a man I met? His name was Middle Passage. That was his chosen name, Middle Passage. We met him in Selma, Alabama. He took a bus from Colorado 40 hours to get there. Then he slept, not metaphorically, but bodily at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge the night before we took this march. We met him at the foot of the bridge and he told us that he wanted to march all the way to Washington, D.C. He was 67 years old, a veteran of the Navy, a veteran of the Vietnam War. He told us he wanted to march himself all the way from Selma, Alabama to Washington, D.C. And not only that, he wanted to carry the American flag. 920 miles into the journey in Spotsylvania, Virginia. Marching nearly every step of the way. Middle and I came to a stoplight. We'd walk through a rainstorm. During the storm, he kept the flag wrapped up. But when we came to the stoplight, the skies parted, the clouds parted, the blue sky emerged. He literally unfurled the flag. And when he unfurled the flag, he collapsed to the pavement. To our right was a group of school children who came to participate in the journey. My hardest day at the end of LACP was coming back to the hospital and explaining to those school children that Middle did not make it. The hardest question I've ever been asked at the end of LACP is this. These school children asked if a man was willing to die for the right to vote, why can't we vote and fight for the right to vote? When you hear a question like that, it leaves one morally befuddled and ethically confused and stammering and stuttering as to a response. But the lesson I take away from that is this. Leadership is something which is not merely moral, but it is physical. There's a certain physiology of leadership, a certain eloquence of example, which is to say you have to show up. When middle passage walked 920 miles in the name of his brother, who was a minister, because he understood the right to vote. What that says to me, and I think it says to all of us, is that the moment that we're in calls for real leadership. It calls for everyone, each of us, as citizens, as children of God, to show up, to march, to demonstrate, to vote, to analyze, to bring forward creative solutions, to partnering and coalesce and create coalitions, the likes of which we have not seen. But it calls, it calls upon us to work with a vision that we are going to transform this republic. And the reason I believe that is because all of us are heirs to the dreams of those who came before. So the NAACP being 107 years old, we understand that if our forefathers and forefathers and our forebears did it, we can too. Can I just paint a picture for you? Were you to come to Washington, or rather come to Baltimore, 
and walk into the headquarters of the NAACP. When you walk through those doors and you look to your right, there's a bronze figure of a black man by the name of Medgar Evers who gave his life for this movement. When you walk down those hallways, you'll notice that every room is appointed with American ideals and furnished with American precepts. There's a picture of a woman with a shy countenance that belied a fierce determination. Her name was Mrs. Rosa Louise Parks. We know her well because she sat down on a bus. What we know less about is the fact that 10 years before, she stood up for African-American rape victims. She was a criminal investigator for the NAACP, and she stood at the side of black women who were sexually assaulted. She stood against misogyny before we used the word misogyny. When you walk down those hallways, you see pictures, Savior Tone pictures of yesteryear, of people like Roy Wilkins and Ella Baker and Martin Luther King. And what you see over and over and over again are not figures of history, but frail and fragile and flawed human beings who were doing the best that they could under the circumstances, demonstrating bravery and courage and grace along the way. And I'd like to believe that 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, maybe if you come to the headquarters of the NAACP, you may see your picture on the wall as a flip, as a as a feel, flawed, fragile, sometimes afraid human beings that we all are coming to grips with the civil rights movement we find ourselves. And if by chance anybody here is tempted to grow weary or discouraged, I want to leave you with these words that if you go onto the campus of Yale University to the rare book library, you'll find these words entombed on a faded piece of manuscript in that library that are yet inscribed on the hearts of millions of supporters and members of the NAACP. The words would be these, a hymn of the NAACP. Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it sound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dog pastors taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun. Let us march on, let us march on, let us march on till victory is Yes, sir. Uh, thank you so much. That was fantastic. Um, so I'm a white guy. <laughs> it is in your thoughts. Um, so I live out in Seattle. It's a heavily segregated community um, and not a lot of uh, African American population at all, um, certainly near where I live. Can you talk a bit about how I can be an ally and what, is, what does allyship look like to you and things that you've seen as particularly effective for folks? So one of the things that I'd like to notice connect the history of the NAACP to contemporary circumstances. So when the NAACP was formed uh, at the turn of the century, 
only a minority of our founders were African American. Uh, they were uh, white progressives, uh, Jewish immigrants, as well as African Americans. Uh, there was a, uh, a prophetic scholar uh, with a Van Dyke beard and a Pearson Gage by the name of W.E.B. Du Bois, whose role in that, in that early gathering was to reassure black folks that the white progressives would not take over everything. So we, we kind of understand diversity from the very beginning. And so when you talk about the role of, 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 of white people in this movement, here's what I would note. If you look at all these demonstrations all across the country, there's incredible diversity. But I want to suggest to you that we need a diversity, not only demography, but also diversity of skill set. And what that means is we need not only activists, but we also need analysts. So note this, in Ferguson, right? Lots of demonstrations, lots of protests, but only one point of accountability. Darren Wilson, not, not held accountable. The Ferguson Police Department was held accountable as a consequence of a pattern and practice suit, settlement, and report by the Department of Justice and the Attorney General Eric Holder. Now ask yourself this question, how was that suit brought about? Brought about by evidence derived from statistics, statistics mandated by law the NAACP wrote with the governor and passed by a broad coalition. Not only African Americans. The point being here is when we bring together diverse skill sets, diverse demographics, diverse citizens, we get things done. So it's not just being diverse in terms of the demographics of who's on the front line, it's also being diverse in terms of the skill sets and the people pushing for policy. And that, I think, is critical because we're in a movement right now where we have those who would like to hide the ball. In other words, they try to depict policing and police misconduct as simply a black issue, simply a brown issue, as opposed to if we're all taxpayers, why are we subsidizing policing that not only puts citizens at risk, but also puts police officers at risk? Point two, look in Flint. In Flint, we, we see an incredibly diverse coalition of people responding to this problem as a matter of science, as a matter of engineering. Uh, the NAACP, we not only had activists and, and demonstrators, but we also brought in one of the best law firms in the country to hold those folks accountable through litigation. So the point being is, in this movement, we need lots of different kinds of people standing in different places and also around the country. And, and so this is not uh, an East Coast problem or, or a Southern problem. And I would simply note, look at the civil rights challenges we've seen over the last couple of years. Can anybody predict where the next crisis will happen? And in whose community? And who's affected? So we need you. Yes, sir. I'm a school principal uh, of a charter school in Harlem. Uh, I serve all of my children are brown and black free and reduced lunch, the majority of them. Uh, we have a waiting list of thousands. Uh, and uh, several years ago, the NAACP sued to stop our schools from growing or opening. And the moratorium most recently seeks to sort of slow the progress of charter schools in terms of opening. I stand before you sort of shocked after hearing you speak and uh, knowing what you represent, or seemingly represent, to know that that happens 
to my children, to the educators that work in my building on the ground, and we talk very eloquently about doing the work, the work in which I do. And by the way, my kids outperform Scarsdale, they outperform the Upper East Side. Um, they, they, they have not only changed the instructional gap, they've reversed it. Uh, and that is happening throughout all the schools in which I work uh, with this particular charter organization, Success Academies. And so I'd like to just sort of get an understanding as to how the NAACP can support that uh, and hear your thoughts directly so I can have more of an informed decision. Sure, sure. So one of the things that should be understood, and we, we said this, let me, uh, in case there may be those who uh, are less familiar with this, the NAACP uh, passed a resolution during the summer on calling for a moratorium on the expansion of charter schools, and then that resolution was ratified by the board. Now, a couple of things. The NAACP going back uh, almost to our beginning, and certainly most prominently in the Brown versus Board of Education decision, we have stu stood courageously for excellence in public education, uh, particularly as an organization that literally went to the Supreme Court and got the Supreme Court to invalidate the principle of separate but our commitment is to public education and to every child. Now, with respect to the moratorium. No I, just want, I just wanted to add that we are a public school. Yeah. All right? exactly. we, we receive public funds. Yes. We don't get the same amount of public funds as a traditional school. I get 75%. I get 75 cents. The principal who runs a failing school in the building which I share, she gets a dollar for every kid. Right? So, but we do get public funds. So, I don't. I want. I don't want to litigate I one school. I just want to make clear where we stand. So, number one, uh, the NAACP is not ideologically opposed to charter schools. We are historically committed to public education. Point number one. Point two, we call for a moratorium on the expansion, not the doomsday destruction, of charter schools. So in other words, we're concerned about a couple of things. We call for a moratorium until such time as we can address the fact that we have expulsion rates in many, not all charter schools, that exceed those in public schools because kids are being kicked out. I'm sure. Sir, let me, let me just answer the, the, sure. the question sure. based upon the data. Uh, the kids are being kicked out at uh, extraordinarily high rates in order to boost uh, the admission standards, it's admission by expulsion. Okay. Number two, there's a challenge where we have seen in say, for example, states like Michigan, where because of the proliferation of charter schools, that has led to the fiscal undoing of the public school system. Number three, we have, in addition to the uh, disciplinary uh, issues, we have the matter of the same standards being applied to charters and non-charters. The resolution says very clearly that there are a great many charter schools that are doing excellent work. We have not called for anything to be done, impeded, in any way, shape, fashion, form to keep them from doing the work that they do. But the challenge for us is that 92% of African-Americans go to non-charter public schools. 
Now, last last point here, just to be clear. We've heard all kinds of things, like the NAACP is in the um, pocketbook of the labor unions, or of the teachers unions. That's true. As somebody, again, sir, this is, I'll answer the question, um, is we receive a pittance from the teachers unions, right? I'm, I, I know the budget, I know how much money comes in. We, get, we, we receive way more money, uh, a lot more money from foundations, from individuals, than we do from the leading teachers' unions, or any teachers' unions, okay? Uh, in addition to that, we, our positions are based upon the fact that we had 2,000 delegates who overwhelmingly took, took the position that they took. This, what, this wasn't something that we got it. This is something that delegates who come from school districts all across the country, and I would note this, in every school district in the, in the country, nearly every one, it is the NAACP that argues for more funding for public schools. It is the NAACP that argues for the funding that supports charter schools and non-charter schools. I would note here in New York, there are charter schools run by unions, charter schools not by running by unions. We have supported charter schools all across this country when they're operating under the same standards. Now people can disagree or agree with that, but I would simply say the position is based on research, based on the overwhelming sentiment of our delegates, and to the point, moratorium or no moratorium, those NAACP delegates and parents will be there fighting for all children. That's just what we've done, and we've done it for the better part of 100 years. Yes. Other questions? example, everyone's, uh, many people may be familiar in the Brown case, you had one side that had um, precedent and basically the law on their side uh, in terms of separate but equal. And the NAACP had an expansive vision of the law and we had social science. We had what we call the Brandeis brief where we had the, the psychologist, Kenneth Park, who had dolls they used to demonstrate that when you separate children by race, it imposes a psychic harm uh, on children, causing them to feel inferior. But we've done that not just in the 1950s, but more, in more contemporary terms. So with respect to the ban the box movement, moving that box off the employment application that asks, have you ever been arrested or convicted of a crime? We've used social science. We have uh, used uh, business and economic arguments. Um, we have engaged in uh, a great many, uh, I should say, very creative coalitions, putting people together, uh, lawyers, uh, investment bankers, uh, captains of an industry, social scientists. 
I would say one of the ways that we endeavor to be creative is by putting different people in the room. Now, here's what I would know. Within the ranks of the NAACP, you have uh, teachers, police officers, investment bankers, uh, you have uh, carpenters, engineers. We have an incredibly diverse organization. Think about this. What other organization are you aware of where you have 2,200 units in every state in the country, every major city in the country, hundreds of small towns, college chapters, Native American reservations, high schools, youth councils, and where 10% of the board seats are reserved for young people. And where at a convention out of 8,000 attendees, 2,000 below the age of 20. So the way you become creative is having a mix of people in the room. So when you come to the NAACP convention, you'll see people your age, you'll see people in their 70s and 80s. You'll see people from big cities and small towns all together. And so when we put together teams to think about how do we craft an advocacy strategy, a social media strategy, we try to literally have as diverse a team as possible. So for example, we grow by social media followers 25, 30% a year. Uh, we will partner with uh, T.D. Jakes and Reform Rabbis. We will partner with John Legend and Chance the Rapper. Right? We, 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 we are not discriminating in any way, shape, fashion, or form, Devon can tell you. We believe by partnering in creative ways, for example, uh, we have benefited from the fact that we have Humanity and Action Fellows at the NAACP. We welcome those kinds of partnerships because it helps us maintain an edge. Yes, sir. I'm hopeful about that. We, it's something that we haven't done except in isolated uh, ins instances. But as you know, the part of that truth and reconciliation process is uh, an admission of truth, right? Recompense, making people whole. And so it's not just uh, moral, con moral confession writ large, but it's also uh, confession, truth being revealed, policy, recompense, so that whole conversation that we're having among the universities about uh, reparation-like, uh, uh, making communities whole, we gotta have that conversation. So in other words, if all we do is have another one of what I call these racial conversations that happen every so many years, we say, we need to have a conversation about race. If it's only a conversation unconnected to policy and reforms, then I, I don't think we're gonna have uh, much reconciliation and certainly no truth. If on the other hand, it's thoughtful, 
it's structured, and I think that's what the Kellogg Foundation is endeavoring to do. And note this, like, we have to give Kellogg a lot of credit. They have brought together the country's leading practitioners in racial justice and put us all in the room. So next week, I'm going to sit down with my colleagues at the headquarters of the NAACP, and we sit down and we talk about what's our strategy for the next five years, the next six years, the next 10 years. And so that alone is incredibly powerful. And we can know here, that's what, what was done only a generation before, right? Martin Luther King and, 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 and the NAACP and the SCLC went down to the Penn Center in South Carolina to strategize. We are at that moment where, frankly, we need that big tent conversation and it needs to be intergenerational, right? You cannot have uh, 50 and 60 year olds and 20 and 30 year olds in different rooms. Not only is it ineffective, it's dangerous, right? Because people get, generations get split from one another. And, 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 and I like to remind people that uh, the victims of racial profiling are multi-generational, right? Tamir Rice, 12, Michael Brown, uh, 18, Eric Garner, grandfather. Walter Scott, uh, a grandfather and a father. We gotta have everyone together. So I think it's 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 a powerful concept, but we would, it really comes down to the mechanics and getting hard policy commitments. I think we had one more question. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Andrew Cotton, and I, like most other HIA fellows, had the privilege of spending about a month in Europe mm -hmm. uh, as part of the Humanity in Action uh, program. And uh, throughout travels, I've noticed that one of the biggest issues is a lack of representation of people of color abroad and the lack of representation of Americans of color abroad to other people uh, living in uh, other countries. What is the NAACP doing to both A, uh, increase interaction uh, between uh, foreigners and Americans of color, as well as exposing uh, Americans of color to other cultures abroad. So uh, let, me, let, me, let me just start with, we could certainly do more, um, but we've done much over time and certainly recently. So in terms of the, some of the leading United Nations commissions um, on concerning uh, our work in terms of the death penalty, uh, in terms of advocacy for, uh, for children, uh, we, the NAACP has been incredibly, uh, an incredibly powerful voice over time and certainly recently. We, uh, on a regular, uh, engage in advocacy for uh, the United Nations, for those bodies, uh, and certain uh, bodies uh, uh, in Europe. Uh, we have maintained, I think, great relationships with a number of our uh, African brothers and sisters in terms of our advocacy work. But do we have a formal fellowship program like this? We do not. I would love to. I would love to. In other words, having a pipeline of talent of, of people from around the world engaged uh, in our work. But the reality is the NAACP is a model global, right? Uh, our model of using litigation, uh, demonstration, uh, education uh, is, is basically not just remade we envision, we engineered American law and public policy. Uh, I, you would be hard pressed, uh, the young lady who's in law school, to think about the practice of disability law, women's law, uh, environmental law. There are organizations in this country that were literally created using the NAACP as a model. 
but not only that, around the world, uh, the NAACP is a model. That being said, if you have some great ideas about how we can do more in terms of having fellows and whatnot uh, come through the ranks of the NAACP, I'd love to learn more from you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.